Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanek here with Figure It Out Baseball. I've got another Figure It Out Baseball podcast today for you, and uh, we're lucky enough to be joined by a returner to the program. We've got Justin Schulte here with us on the phone today. Justin is the head coach at Southeastern Community College that is in Burlington, Iowa. It's a junior college in Burlington, Iowa. Uh, he's been on the program before, but he's, uh, he, he's an excellent coach. In addition to being an excellent coach, he's a guy that I used to coach under way back when in a different life. Uh, and he's someone that's had a ton of success through his college coaching career and uh, just someone I think there's there's a lot to talk about with him, a lot to learn from. So I'm really excited to get into some, some new things today uh, with him and, and touch on some different subjects we didn't get into last time. I'll give you a quick bit of background on Coach Schulte, let you know who he is in case you didn't listen to the first podcast. Um, Coach Schulte started his playing career actually at a Division three school called Simpson. I uh, went from there to Southeastern Community College and then uh, transferred to the University of Iowa. So he's got a cool background story there. Started at D3, went to a JUCO, ended up at, a, uh, at, at the University of Iowa. Currently, he's in his 25th season overall as a college coach. He is entering his 22nd season as a college head coach. He's, uh, this will be his 15th season as the head coach at Southeastern Community College, again in Burlington, Iowa. In 21 seasons as a college head coach, Coach Schulte's got 836 wins. That's an average of 39.81 wins per season. That number is creeping closer and closer to 40 wins a year on average every season. Uh, he started his his head coaching career at Mount Mercy. That's an NAIA school in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. In seven seasons there, he went 276 and 170. He is the all-time wins leader at Mount Mercy by a long shot. Uh, he's got 36 had 36 All-Conference players in seven years and 14 All-Americans in seven seasons at Mount Mercy. At Southeastern Community College, he just finished, just uh, completed his sixth straight season with 40 wins or more. That is a school record by a long shot. He's got 560 wins in 14 seasons. That comes out to an even 40 wins a year on average at Southeastern. Uh, in 14 years at Southeastern, he's got 114 All-Region players, 11 All-Americans. More than 140 players have signed. Uh, at a four-year school or sign pro contracts. Um, I'll go back a couple of years and, and just give you uh, some highlights from some other years. I'm not going to go back through all 14 years. But uh, in 2012 and 2013, those two seasons, Coach Schulte had two All-Americans. He had two, all, uh, two conference defensive players of the year. He had a conference batting champion for the fourth time in his tenure during that span. Also the home run champion for the fourth time uh, in the conference in, in those two years, as well as the player of the year. Uh, Coach Schulte had the player of the year at that point uh, in the, the conference player of the year four of, this, of his first eight years at Southeastern. In 2014, the team went to the World Series. They were ranked as high as fourth in the country. They finished that year with 45 wins, which is the school record. And I, I don't know what the number is offhand, but I know that of the top ten winning seasons in the school history, uh, Coach Schulte might have all of them. If he doesn't, he's probably got nine of them, but I'll probably ask him that. That'll be one of our first questions to get into. Uh, 2014, he had the Conference Defensive Player of the Year, also had the Conference Pitcher of the Year. Going to 2015, he had the Conference Defensive Player of the Year again that year, had the Reliever of the Year. They were third in the nation in hits in 2015 as a team. In 2016, he had the Conference Pitcher of the Year for the sixth year out of nine years. Uh, had the Conference Pitcher of the Year on his team. 2017, they had a first-team All-American. Also had the Conference Reliever of the Year again that year. In 2018, they set the school record with 46 wins. Uh, the team also led the nation in defense. They had the conference defensive player of the year for the seventh time in 12 years. 
uh, which is unbelievable when, when you, especially if you know anything about junior college baseball in Iowa. Um, it's a it's a state where kids really grow up wanting to play in junior college, and and the the junior college baseball there is excellent. You're going to see multiple. Uh, multiple Iowa junior colleges in the top 25 every season. So it's not like they're in a cake conference. I mean, it's really pretty impressive what Coach Schulte's done. And then in 2019, the team won 41 games. Again, that was the sixth straight year with 40 or more wins. They went to a regional championship for the seventh time in 14 seasons. They had the national saves leader, who was also the conference reliever of the year. That's the third year in a row they had the the conference reliever of the year. Uh, and in 2019, they also were ranked as high as fourth in the country and spent basically the whole season in the top 25. Coach Schulte, in his 21 seasons as a college head coach, has never had a losing season. Uh, coach Schulte, really appreciate you being here with us today. Um, I'm excited to get into some questions with you. Appreciate it, Jeff, and appreciate that introduction. Yeah, it took, it took so long, such a long introduction that uh, your, your voice went out on you a little bit. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff to get into. There's a, there's a lot that I think people need to know about you. <clears throat> and one of the things about Figured Out Baseball Podcast, <clears throat> excuse me, I got the same thing going on here. One of the good things about Figured Out Baseball Podcast that are different from a lot of other podcasts out there is that, you know, we have a lot of coaches that a lot of people around the country won't have heard of because they don't, they don't coach on TV. You know, a lot of our a lot of our people, a lot of our guests on the show are, uh, you know, lower-level Division One, Division Two, Division Three, junior college, NAIA coaches. And, and there's a lot of really, really good coaches out there in the country who don't coach at Power 5 schools. And it's important for me to let people know that are listening to this that how good these guys are that are on the program, and you're one of the best, uh, you know, one of the best anywhere. So uh, it's, it's an introduction I think is really necessary anytime that you're on here or anywhere else for that matter. I appreciate it. Well, I want to kind of – I usually start with something on the resume that jumps out. There are so many things on yours that do jump out, um, and I kind of brought this up, but I'd like to ask you for clarification. Of the top ten winning seasons in Southeastern history, how many of them do you have? you know that? I imagine we have nine of them. Forty. We're the only ones that have won 40 games here, and I think my last year as an assistant – we won 38 games here, so those are probably the top 10, I believe. That's pretty impressive. For a program that's been around for a while and has had, had a decent amount of success before you got there. So you were an assistant at Southeastern uh, for a time. You played there. You were an assistant there, and you've been the head coach now. This will be this will be your 15th year there. What is it about Southeastern that keeps you around? Um, well, my family, for one. Um, I got – a 16-year-old son that's about to graduate here in a couple of years, so that'll keep me here. We like the small community, and, um, you know, Southeastern's been good to me. I graduated from here. I got my first job here. Um, my little brother played here and then went to UAB down in Birmingham from Southeastern, and, um, you know, it's just I love the junior college level. I love what it can do for kids after uh, Southeastern. And, uh, you know, what we try to do for them while they're here is, you know, get them better and get them tougher, get them ready for life after Southeastern, which is, you know, getting into a four-year college and and being successful at that level, both academically and, and of course, on the baseball field. For people who aren't real familiar with junior college, I know we've, I've talked about this before with some other coaches on the program, but it's important for me, uh, especially as a, 
as someone that grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, uh, I had a very inaccurate idea of what junior college was about when I was in high school. Like I, I would have never considered going to a junior college because I thought, I thought the junior college was where kids went that just couldn't hack it academically at a four-year school right out of high school. Um, would you would you just be able to clear that up a little bit and kind of give people an idea of what the academics are like and you know, what the appeal is about going to a junior college for someone who might be you know looking to play in college baseball? Well, on the academic end, I, I just I've never understood the stigma. I guess um, kids can get a two-year degree um, that should transfer pretty 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 easy actually um, as long as the grades are in order you know you get no D's or anything on your transcript um, you got 2.5 GPA that's now what the division ones are looking for um, and you know at the end of your four-year career and you got a bachelor's degree that's what your resume says where your bachelor's degree is from I, I don't know how much people delve into uh, people's transcripts but um, but yeah, I mean, on the academic end, it's usually, you know, we've we've sent a bunch of guys on to the four-year level, um, almost over 10 a year, it feels like, and and they've all graduated from a four-year college and and got their bachelor's degrees, and and um, you know, it hasn't been a, it's been a pretty smooth transition, to be honest with you. On, on the baseball end, I think junior college is is a place for guys who. You know, maybe not getting the looks they want uh, out of high school. Um, they need a chance to develop. You know, at the junior college level, at, at a place like ours, there's there's a chance to play almost 100 games a year. You, you get a chance to play, you know, 20, 20 dates in the fall and and obviously a 56-game schedule in the spring. And, you know, if you if you do it right in the fall, your kids are, are borderline uh, sophomores by the time they're in the spring of their freshman year. So, uh, I believe in I believe in the competition end. Um, people talk a lot about player development today, and and one part of player development you never hear about the competitive side of it. And I think that's I think that's a big part of player development, honestly. And 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 uh, we definitely try to sell that to recruits and and get guys on the field as often as we can against somebody in a different uniform in the fall. So I think I've asked you this last time that we talked, but. It's such a it's such a, an interesting thing to me to talk about. Uh, last time we were on we were on the podcast together, I asked you how many of your kids that came in there got a better offer when they left than you know before they came, and, and your answer was just about all of them. I mean, every pretty much everybody that sticks it out for two years gets a better offer, even if it's the same college is making offers. They're you know maybe offering a little more money or or whatever it may be. Um, do you have any specific guys that that kind of stick out to you? Any any cool stories? just to kind of relate to people to give them some real examples of, you know, this is a kid that came in with really hardly any interest. Nobody really knew about him and he left here with this kind of opportunity. Anybody that really stands out to you from, from your, you know, long tenure at, at Southeastern? Well, one of my favorite stories is, uh, is actually you probably responsible for it more than anybody was Dakota Backus. Um, you know, Dakota came in to Southeastern. He, I won't get into Dakota's grades, but uh, <laughs> he wasn't a great student, and um, you know, graduated from our place with over a 3.0, and got a really great opportunity at Indiana State. Um, I believe he might have been the Missouri Valley Pitcher of the Year, but I mean, he was he was Indiana State's Friday Night guy, and and ended up a ninth round pick with the Oakland A's. 
He was later traded for Kurt Suzuki straight up, and uh, he's still in the Nationals organization, and he's in AAA. He's a AAA All-Star this this year. Um, I think it was sixth or seventh year of pro ball, and um, and we didn't have a lot of competition for Dakota when, as you remember, when we were recruiting him. Um, one of my favorite stories was you going to see him, and he was really bad, and we talked to him after the game, and he was like, "Is Shelby gonna still take me, or is he gonna get rid of me after this?" You know? so, but, but, but we saw some potential in him, and uh, you know that's one of my favorite stories. I just think where his career started and and is still going is, is a phenomenal story. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I I remember seeing him, and uh, I remember that he had a cousin that showed up when he came to campus, and. I, don't, I forget the cousin's name, but I believe he ended up being a Division One player as well. You probably remember his name. Uh, maybe he went to Western Illinois. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm uh, his name. Sam Walbert? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I don't know if they're cousins or best friends, but, yeah, they came he might together. Been friends. Either way, uh, that was a funny story. So at, at a junior college, you're allowed to bring kids on campus to work out for you. Um, in fact, as a couple of my stops, we would. it's, it's not uncommon to – bring a high school player in and let him actually practice with the team. I don't know if you guys do that or not now, uh, Coach Schultz. I know I've, I've, we did that at this, my second stop at the JUCO. It was just a thing that we did a lot to kind of see how a kid, you know, fit in with guys, uh, you know, with college guys around him. But but this at this particular workout, uh, Dakota Backus showed up, and, uh, yeah, he brought his friend with him and he just said, hey, he's, I think he had arm surgery or something happened. He said nobody's really on him, and we ended up signing him. And I believe he ended up going to – did he go to Western Illinois? Yeah, Am I correct does. on that? So he was a Division One player too, but yes, in Dakota's, in um, in Dakota Backus's case, uh, if he hadn't come to Southeastern, he probably would have ended up at a D two or D three, and who knows what would have happened. But it's a different story when you're Indiana State's Friday night guy. And uh, I, did, I actually saw him. I don't know if I told you that, but I saw him when he came through and uh, and played in Altoona a couple seasons ago um, with Washington with Washington's organization, and um, I got to see him and talk to him a little bit. So. <clears throat> on the player development side, um, in your opinion, you just, you just said the competition side of it, the competitive side of player development, in your opinion, is one of the biggest things about player development. What do you do, uh, I guess, to to really to kind of to kind of bring out the competitive side of guys? What do you do to make to create competitive environments and? Uh, I guess enhance the competitive side of the players that you bring in. That's that's something I really think is a is a really unique thing about your program. You know, what do you do for with the, uh, you know at practice or games or, or when it? How are you how are you cultivating that? Well, we're playing a lot in the fall. Um, you know, one thing we do a little different. We we play in the fall. We hire umpires at our home games. Um, we turn the scoreboard on. Um, and it's not, you know, let's face it, it's not to have a good record in the fall. It's 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 an opportunity to play the scoreboard. And, you know, maybe we're in a good tight game and, and maybe I'll put a kid in a game that right now I don't know who he is as a player, but he gets in that 5-4 game as a reliever and I can learn about how he handles that. Or we pinch hit some guys later in that same game just to see how they handle those at-bats. And, and let's face it, it's not the same environment as a spring game, but it, the scoreboard is on. There's umpires. There's guys in the other dugout. And it's something that we can talk about after the game 
um, situational stuff, game-winning stuff um, that, you know, hopefully is a teaching point for us. Um, as far as practice goes, uh, you know, we really turned our BP into competition every day, some sort of competition every day, um, whether it's situational BP and competition through that with, with all 18 or 20 hitters um, trying to do the same thing. Um, from a competitive standpoint, um, you know, just a lot of different things where the scoreboard's on a lot of our practice, and it might say 180 to 160 some days if somebody drives by, they're wondering if we have any pitching or not. But <laughs> um, but it actually is we're keeping score for 10 innings on something different every inning, and um, trying to teach the game that way and 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 understand. You know, people talk use the term you got to play every pitch and and you know I believe in that as well but I think you got to try to explain to your team or make them understand the importance of situational baseball and playing every pitch and and uh, that that run in the third inning might be the difference in the baseball game come the ninth inning and you know we got to take advantage of those situations what does playing every pitch mean well, to me, it's just the the focus on every pitch and and understanding, um, you know, you can't take pitches off, can't take plays off. You know, I think one thing I've learned about junior college baseball and especially regional baseball, I, I feel like the game doesn't start till the seventh inning. <laughs> so uh, you see a lot of runs scored in the last three innings of games, and and if you can take care of a lot of the, if you can take care of a lot of it in the first six innings, the last three innings um, become a little bit uh, more in your favor, hopefully, and a little bit more downhill instead of you know being behind or giving away three or four runs early that you're chasing for six innings. Um, so I think playing every pitch is, you know, at the end of a game, it always comes down to two or three plays that that decide the game, and you don't know what those plays are until the game is over. So. Um, but it's easy to understand why you didn't win if you if you took those pitches off or if you didn't compete hard for nine innings. A couple of the things you just mentioned that I'd like to ask about uh, the competitive BP. Do you mind uh, kind of expanding on you know these these what you're doing in practice where you know the scores is a hundred and some to a hundred and some on the scoreboard? Like what are you guys? What, what are you keeping track of to make that to make your batting practice competitive and to make guys compete in batting practice? You mind sharing that? Sure. Um, you know, we we'll put two teams in the field or one team in the field, one team at bat, and we'll, we'll let all nine guys hit. You know, or all ten guys hit. Whatever we have, we divide them into two. And you know, round first inning might be a drag bunt inning where we're we're drag bunting between cones and into the danger zone. I guess we call it where the pitcher or the third baseman has to make a play and you have to put it between those cones to get a run or to get a point that's on the scoreboard and and you know one team may get nine out of nine the other team may get six out of nine so it's nine to six after the first inning and then the second inning you know maybe a hit and run um where we're trying to move a runner and stay out of the middle of the field and and um you know that's it's going to be dictated point-wise based on how how they execute that. That that starts with a runner on first, and in the third inning may be runner on second, nobody out, and can we move that runner from second to third base? And you know we just do situational every inning. You know toward the end of the game, then we bring the infield in, 
in the infield back. Um, and just we're trying to drive runs in, and then there's two out hitting with with a guy on third base, and you got to you got to barrel up a baseball with two outs, and you know those type of things are are uh, you know I think are important um, in situational baseball. I think that's how you win and lose baseball games. So are you doing and that? Well, gives you gives you a heck of a chance to win baseball games if you if you're executing on a consistent basis. Yeah, I think most teams that play you guys throughout the seasons would say that that's that's a staple of southeastern baseball is just being being good at the little things and executing, and uh, usually that's something you guys are pretty good at. Um, just as far as is how this BP is actually happening, like are you throwing a, a regular round of BP and the last pitch is the competitive pitch, or is each guy like seeing one live pitch and he's getting out of there like, a, like an at-bat? How exactly are you laying this out in practice? When we play it this way, it's it's one pitch or one at bat. For, it's one at bat. So you, I mean, you don't have to. You're actually taking your at bat off a BP pitcher. So you know if he's if he's pounding you in and you're and you got an approach middle of wave, then obviously you're gonna, you might take a few pitches. But um, but yeah, it is a, it is an at bat, and then boom. So you get you virtually get nine at bats if we play nine innings of situational baseball and and. Uh, and all, and then there's also, you know, we do a lot of other things BP-wise. Um, play a lot of live BP, um, where every other ball is live, and and you're you're putting your guys in position to make plays or get your cuts and relays in. Um, just stuff where guys are active and they're not just standing around um, as much as as much as you can, keep them moving around and, and keep them active. For a lot of these competitive things you guys are doing, are you using? Uh, pitching machines that are cranked up pretty good. Do you just have, do you have a uh, do you have an actual pitcher on the mound, just kind of you know uh, throwing BP fastballs, or do you have do you have an actual coach throwing BP? I'm just I'm curious as to how you're laying all this out. Um, coach coach BP most of the time. Um, but the, there will be times where we're trying to get some guys some pitches, and we'll throw you know we'll throw one of our guys out there for one for one half inning. Um, hopefully, you can get through that half inning in, in 15 to 20 pitches, but. Um, a lot of times it's just machine BP off the off the hack attack or or our pitching or our BP coach throwing throwing BP coach McVeigh. How much do you believe in using the hack attack and, and cranking it up and, and hitting velocity at, at practice? How much is that a part of your everyday practices? Oh, it's more. We do a lot more of that in the off season and in the in season in preparation for certain certain teams or certain pitchers. Um, I know Coach McVeigh likes to use the the hack attack for for a lot of breaking ball work. Um, I, I, bet, I bet we probably use it over 50% for breaking ball stuff than we do for for the fastball hitting. Um, but yeah, we we do use it quite a bit, and um, you know he's got a couple. Good drills. I really like. Um, they're almost borderline conditioning drills um, with the hack attack as well, hitting breaking balls and and uh, guys kind of getting in a two strike mode of trusting their hands and and um, you know and, and like I said, it's it's kind of a conditioning drill the way he does it and uh, where it's, you're kind of rapid and by the time you're in your into your thirtieth or fortieth swing, it's it's you know you start to understand how well you can trust your hands and, and let the ball travel a little bit more. So, um, but yeah, we use it quite a bit more for the for the off-speed stuff than we do for for fastball hitting. To be honest with you, 
Another term you mentioned when we were talking about just what you're doing at practice is play the scoreboard. And I and and I just that was a term that you introduced to me that I took with me throughout the rest of my coaching career and something if I if I get back into coaching at any point, it's something that it's something I'm certainly gonna bring up again and it's gonna be a focal point with our guys. But can you kind of explain and define what that means for anybody that's listening to this that maybe is not familiar with that term. What does it mean to you to play the scoreboard? Oh, I think um, playing the scoreboard, there's a lot. You're playing the scoreboard dictates how you're going to play a lot of times. If you're if you're down two runs in the ninth inning and you're at first base, um, you know, you're going to have to play it, play it pretty close to the vest. I mean, we can't have pickoffs or or the tying rounds at the plate, depending on who that guy is, that that could be that could be the guy we want up there. Um, but I think the biggest thing is just paying attention to situations, um, understanding what you mean as a base runner, understanding what your at bat means, understanding what the count is, um, anticipating certain things. You know, three, two, one out. Um, and and coach puts the steal on. What's that mean? That you virtually can play that as a hit and run. I mean, there's going to be contact or ball four, hopefully, if if we got the right hitter at the plate. Um, those are things. You know, we have, you know, we have a, we don't expect to get picked off all year on the bases if nothing is on. If we don't have anything on uh, as a steal or anything, we don't expect to get picked off. We we're we're gonna. I don't want to say we're gonna play conservatively, but we're gonna play smart. Um, and save and cherish our base runners and understand what they mean and and you know so those things you know all go into playing that scoreboard it's something that our guys need to understand you know are you going to force force action down a run in the ninth if if you hit a ball down the left field line and it's a 50 50 play you probably you probably not if you're up two in the ninth and there's and there's two outs yeah you, you might force that action um but if you're down two in the ninth and you get that single down the left field line, you probably you probably can't take a chance of getting thrown out second because the tying runs coming. You brought the tying run to play. You got your job done. So those are things that you know, we talk about regularly because um, base running is a big part of of baseball, and I think smart base running is is a big part of it. You know, one thing we're proud of is is our stolen base percentage. We we want to steal bases at an 85 percent or above clip. And uh, we don't want to throw base runners away. And there's years we don't run very much, and there's years we ran a lot. But at, at both ends of it, we're usually a really high percentage uh, base running team. And and um, our guys, by the time hopefully by the time we're in, in season, are, they have a really good understanding of of what good base or you know smart base running is and aggressive at the right time. For base stealing, that's always something that's really intriguing to me that I'm in, I'm really interested in. How do you 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 still coach third base, right? Or is that has that changed? Yes, I do. So you're you're a third base coach. You're calling the shots during the game. What do you see as a third base coach? Third base coach that tells you this is a good time for us to run. We should be able to steal this base. Like what kind of what's all going into that in your mind? Um, a lot of things. Pitch patterns are big. Um, what the other team's been doing in situations, uh, how they've been pitching off their fastball, obviously how how quick a guy is the home plate, um, how athletic the pitcher is. We talk a lot about that. How quick his feet are, um, what you have to fear from that pitcher, and then obviously the catcher plays a big part in that too. 
Um, but I think I think you steal more bases off the pitcher and timing off of him than you do the catcher a lot of times. And you know, and how aggressive the other team is, um, you know, with their with their holds, you know, holding runners at first base or second base. I think that that plays a lot into it too. Um, you know, we we're a team that will look to steal third in the right situations. If the team does a good job of holding runners, we're and they're taking that away from us, then that's fine. There's probably a hole open somewhere else on the field. Um, but, you know, anything that – in baseball, it feels like anything that somebody's taking away from you, they're opening something else up. I, I feel like the slide step is something that we talk to our hitters a lot about. Um, there's a lot of slide steps in, in baseball that, in my opinion, aren't done correctly where – guys lose velocity and they and they're up in the zone a lot and we're not going to run on those guys but hopefully we're going to hit doubles off of them <laughs> so <laughs> um and that's something that it's a mindset that our hitters are supposed to you know we want them to embrace that okay we're we're, we're going to be shut down here running wise but we're going to drive that guy in from first base anyway so um and hopefully you can develop that mentality with with your guys and and uh, make them understand uh, that as, as the game's going on and there's, you know, in college baseball, there's always guys you you go to see how the stretch in the windup. They, they lose a little bit, and they're not not as competitive, and and uh, you know, the big inning can happen then. Another thing you mentioned that I'd really like to talk about is just the end of the game. You know, there there are a lot more runs scored at the end of the game. It seems like the last three innings than the first six. And uh, you know, going back to your bio, you guys have had the conference reliever of the year three straight years. Uh, I don't know how many times you've had it, you know, in your years at Southeastern, but excuse me, I know in my couple years with you, the back end of our bullpen was, was really good both years. And that was something that I felt like was always a niche that you've had is being able to comb through your roster and figure out who needs to be throwing the last two or three innings and particularly with your closer and your closers are not always your hardest throwers. Your closers are not always, um, I guess, the, the, the biggest guy with the biggest arm necessarily, but you've had a ton of success with the back end of your bullpen. How, as a coach, do you – like, what are you looking at? Um, what are the characteristics for you of the guy that's got a chance to be a back end of the bullpen type guy? Um, great presence. Um, great presence. And, you know, we spend a lot of the time in the fall trying to figure out who that guy is if he's not returning. Um, and I'll be honest, there's a lot of – we spend a lot of time after this freshman year of determining whether to leave him there or make him a starter. Um, most of our guys that closed here, that they don't want to start. They love – they cherish that role. Man, that's hard to – for me, that's hard to – to lose that if, if we're good enough he's going to get a lot of opportunities you know if it's a point where we're not good enough and we need to make him a starter so we can get to the end of the game um then, then that's that's an adjustment we'd have to make but um fortunately we, we've been good enough to get our get our relievers a lot of opportunities but you know the one thing about college baseball is no matter how good or how bad, I don't want to say bad, or how good you are, or maybe you're not as good as you want to be, you're always going to be in close games. And, um, you know, one of the things about us over the last, you know, 21 years, uh, 
almost 25% of our wins are one-run one wins. We, we've played 700 baseball and one-run games over the last 21 years, and uh, we keep track of that, obviously, as you just found out. But, um, you know, that's something that you have to win those games. We, we've never had a losing record in one-run games here at Southeastern, and if, if you were to reverse our record in one-run games, we, we would have never won 40 games. And to me, that that's where I think – we don't all, we don't only are we don't only pride ourselves in having a good closer. We we actually try to find three relievers that that we can turn the game over to, and uh, and and we just had a really good luck of of find, having really competitive kids that embrace that role. And you know it's not easy to to tell a kid he's your seventh inning guy. He he may never get a win all year or a save, but he may throw 24 times and and. Um, not have much to show for it, but he's really one of your MVPs because he got the, he got the ball to the next guy, and and I think it takes a special kid to embrace that. And um, and some of my favorite guys, including my current setup guy, or, or my favorite guys that we've coached, or and most competitive guys, or they just they just want to be part of something, and uh, they they embrace that role. They're 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 just fine to give get do their job and get the ball to the next guy. How do you kind of weed out a guy that's got legitimate confidence, legitimate presence, as opposed to somebody who's kind of faking it, I guess. I think for anybody that's coached, you see a guy that's got kind of fake confidence about him and, and he kind of acts like he's, um, you know, he's got it together and acts like he's a tough, you know, tough uh, kind of a gritty guy, but really deep down he's pitching scared out there. How do you um, how do you figure that out through the, through the fall? Is that something that you, that you figure out in the fall games or is there – other things that you do throughout the year where you can kind of get, uh, you know, see who the real person is underneath the kind of the, the facade. How do you figure that out? Well, some of I probably can't say on our podcast, but <laughs> uh, we try to test them a little bit, see what they're made of. Um, you know, one thing we do a lot of here is, is, is team defense. And that sounds crazy. Um, but I believe, one of the best ways to speed up practice and speed up a kid's mind is through team defense in first and third situations and bunk covered stuff with the runner on second and seeing kids how they respond, um, especially early when they get here in the fall and the game's a little faster and you got base runners out there. Um, you kind of see the presence of a kid and, and all of a sudden you put them in a game and you – kind of see the presence of a kid there when he's making pitches and and you know I think it's a it's a learning process you know sometimes you don't find that find that guy until you know in the spring and you, you've played you've played 10 or 12 games and you and you had a kid that's you know down on your depth chart a little bit and all of a sudden you put him in some tough situations and he gets out of a few you put him in some non-leverage situations and he's fine and all of a sudden you're like well let's try him in this situation and he, he contains himself pretty well and all of a sudden you know four weeks later he's pitching pitching the sixth or the eighth inning for you every time and and getting a goose egg and and um it's an evolving thing i don't think it's there's no science behind it obviously but um you know the ability to make pitches is something that those guys have to do. Some of them come in specifically to get us out of an inning, and um, I'm hoping they make those three pitches I saw in the bullpen 
uh, on their bullpen the other day, you know, and, and you know, we're gonna try to execute what they did in the bullpen the other day and if they do they're gonna be they're gonna get us out of that inning. Um and then give them a clean inning hopefully. But um I think it's I think it's something that, you know, for some reason we've had a good good luck with it and uh found the right guys and and I'll and I'll be honest, a lot of times it's guys that just don't have quite starter stuff. They have a good fastball that they can locate and they have an outfit one out pitch and to me, that's enough for an inning. Um, you know, the guy with the plus changeup and the good breaking ball and the and the good fastball that can spot it. That guy's probably more destined to be a reliever for or a starter for us. So, um, you know, the one thing we're trying to do from from day one is, is put together a good ten or twelve man staff and and you know the priority honestly is finding the guys at the back end. Interesting. It's backwards to how a lot of teams probably you know probably. Uh, set up their roster, but again, something that's obviously worked for you guys. You also have a really interesting way <laughs> to develop kids in the off season and to kind of figure out who's who in in the off season when you're not on the field. Can you talk about any of that um, and and what that means for your program and how you start to separate? Uh, I guess the competitors from the excuse makers in the off season. Yeah, well, we do we do things a little differently. Um, we kind of break our season into four phases, so to speak. Um, the competition phase, um, we're playing a lot in the fall. Obviously, we're practicing a lot. We're we're lifting during the fall season three days a week. Um, and we're playing, you know, two or three days a week if we can. And there's showcases involved in that. Uh, that, that there's a lot of those now in the fall in junior college. And um, so that, but that's, you know, the priority there for me, honestly, is, is finding the competitive sides of kids, um, finding your best, you know, players. And um, but then at, at the eight-week point, I shut it down. I, I know it might be 60 degrees out in October in Iowa and. It's still good playing weather, um, but but I'm big into that second phase of of off season where, um, you know, we we get in the weight room full time. We're in there five days a week. We lift four. We we do circuit training one, um, and and uh, you know, big thing of our program is our conditioning. Um, we we condition at six in the morning, and um, I don't know one kid in America that wants to get up and condition at six in the morning, but. Um, I think that's the best time to, to test their test their motor a little bit and and, and find out um, you know find out a little bit more about them and see who embraces that time of year. And um, one thing I've always determined in December is if if our team's going to be tough enough to compete uh, with our schedule that we like to play. So um, you know, in our 6 a.m. isn't. You know, it isn't not two hours of running. It's it's you know sometimes with the dynamic warm up and some of the other things we do, it's it's actually 30 minutes of conditioning. But um, it's it's intense conditioning um, and a lot of time conditioning. A lot of you're running for times and and competing against the clock and trying to see what kind of shape you can get in. There's guys that don't make those times early on, but um, by the time December rolls around, our teams. I always t- say they're like machines, and they they're very competitive against what we're trying to do. And you see it in practice, and some of the competition we do in the morning with some relay races and things like that. It's, it's it gets pretty intense. So, 
um, you know, our guys understand it and, and they embrace it. And um, it's not for everybody. I, you know, we I think we lose recruits because of uh, because of our work ethic. To be honest with you, but um, you know, I'm just trying to get kids when they leave here that nothing they do at the next level is going to be overwhelming for them, and and we set them up for success. Hopefully. I think it's just interesting what you do with your guys, and that's kind of why I wanted to ask you about it because I think that uh, I think it's sort of popular now for people to think that the conditioning part of baseball is overrated because you don't need to be in that great of shape. I mean, people need to be – obviously, the, the weight room is a big thing, but as far as just conditioning guys and running guys, you know, it's it's kind of a popular thing now just to say that that's not really that necessary, but – it's really necessary for your program and, and to find winners and, and to, like you well, said, figure out I'm December. Go ahead. To interrupt you there, the funny thing, Jeff, is, you know, I don't know how many kids in the last, I don't know, five, six years have called me and said, man, coach, I I just never feel as fresh during our season as I, as I did at, your, at Southeastern. And, you know, we take, we, you know we, we take five southern trips. We're on the bus a lot. And that's hard on your body. The playing's hard enough on your body, but getting on and off that bus and driving 10 hours, and I think your body's got to be in shape for that. And, uh, you know, some guys, you know, I had a kid call me last year and said he he was, he was felt drained in mid-April. And because I just don't ever recall not being fresh when I played at Southeastern. You always kept us fresh. You know how to, kept us, you know how to get us in shape and keep us fresh during the season. And, and uh, you know. It's, I think it's important. I personally do. Um, but, you know, it's not for everybody. Like I said, some people may disagree. Um, we, we, we tend to play good baseball in, in April and, and May. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll continue to try to develop guys the same way on that end of it. So developing guys and just being fresh for the spring, what goes into that? Uh, is it is it you feel like the, comp- the, um, the conditioning in the off season is what sets them up for that? Or do you – uh, is it the way that you structure practice in the spring around your games? Or, you know, what exactly are you doing that's a little bit different than some other programs just to keep guys fresh and healthy and, and at their best, at you know, peaking in April and May? Well, I think I probably we're not probably doing much different than other people, but I think our conditioning in, in, from October to December is a big help for them. Um, you know, we give them a program over Christmas break that we just left them with, and – I don't expect them to do everything we send them, but if they do, you know, two-thirds of it or 75% of it, they're going to be in really good shape when they get back. And, and we'll test them a little bit when they get back to see to see who did what. And and, um, and then it's, you know, it's a couple days, maybe one day a week of, of, of conditioning to keep them sharp, but just a lot of base running drills. And, and now that we got our bubble, we can do a lot more live stuff. And, and um, you know, and then once you get, once you get back on these trips, um, you know, we, we, we'll get back on Sunday night and our guys will have Monday off and, and uh, we'll, we'll get after it for just a couple of days of practice and one, one pretty heavy day probably and one, one fairly light day and, and back, back at it the next weekend on the bus. And we dealing with our southern travel and it's conference time and, and you kind of got to monitor, um, just kind of monitor the pace and, I think you pay attention to your players a lot more that time of year, um, their body language and and what they're telling you, their energy level, and and trying to keep their energy level uh, fresh for for the weekends especially, and 
and you know maybe the guy needs Tuesday off in non-conference game, and that's okay. But uh, maybe you can get a pinch hit later. But you just got to kind of keep an eye on that, and and you know, I think your players do the best job of telling you without telling you anything um, if you're paying attention to their their body language and their energy level and and things like that. So that's important. Someday, sometimes just going to the ballpark, taking around a BP, and and watching eight innings and waiting for your pinch hits, it's, it's a good it's a good mental break for you. And uh, and then getting back in there um, on the weekend. But um, you know, the players do they probably do the best job of telling you um, without saying a word <laughs> if they need a day or not. So that's awesome. So um, you've talked a lot about player development and just about things that you're doing uh, to get your players ready for the season, to prepare to win. I haven't heard you say anything about, um, you know, using any kind of tech, which I know you guys do, but how, to, to you, how much has – well, let me just preface by saying I think on <clears throat> on social media over the last handful of years it is – you get you get the impression that if you don't have all of the latest technology and you're not using it, then you're not coaching right, and and then and that you're not uh, doing the best possible thing for your players. And I'm and I know you guys use it again, but I also know there's a lot of things that you you've done that are the same as you've done for a long time, or at least close. Obviously, you you probably tweak it a little bit. Um, but to you, how much has coaching changed? since you've started? I mean, how much has the game changed? How much is it about, you know, what you have to do with players or what you need to do to prepare them? How much has that changed over the years, especially with the introduction for Rap Soto and things like that, that, again, you, you, you guys use in your program, but how much has, has coaching and preparing players to have success really, really changed with the introduction for all this, with all this technology? Well, my honest opinion, this might not be a popular one, but I think coaching's changed a lot because I think there's a lot of coaches out there that think think it's about them, um, and you see that on social media. And as, as long as this game's going to be played and as long as the game was played before 2019, the, the game's about the players. Um, you know, yeah, we do, we do a lot of the tech stuff, but um, if we have to advertise it to – to make sure people know we're doing it, then maybe we're not doing it for the right reasons. <laughs> but, um, but that's I think that's how the good games change. I think um, what social media has done is, is give everybody a voice, and they think they think they're the most important voice, and that's unfortunate. Um, when when it's you know our job number one job is just for the kids. It's it's for developing these kids um, mentally, physically, socially for their next step we're junior college baseball we're a stepping stone we're not you know i don't want a kid to look back and and i just want to look back and say southeastern was a good choice because it allowed them to go to the next level and it was, it was the right choice to get to that level i don't need them to say it was a highlight of their life um if it is great but i, I feel bad because they didn't they didn't enjoy something after us but um so that's that's my biggest thing with coaching. I mean, I think it, it does. If if you're not, it, it's it's big in recruiting now. I think you're starting to see it at lower levels, and and I'm sorry, it's it, we do a lot of tech stuff and a lot of the analytics stuff, but at the base of who we are, um, 
it's it's not it's not at the base of who we are. It's part of who we are. Um, and I I think whether you're doing it right or doing it wrong, I don't think anybody knows that until May. <laughs> you can you can evaluate all you want, um, but I'm sorry if you if you're a 20 and 30 program, how much how many wins were those text was that tech stuff worth or how much better did your players get and um, I still think winning matters, and and uh, I think that's how you evaluate everything at the end. If 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 you were doing things right and and had a winning environment and a winning culture, I think I think that's what kids want to be a part of. If if they don't want to be a part of that, um, they're definitely not the right kids for us. But um, you know, I think putting a kid through a full season of you know six months and getting them in the finish line and telling them hard work is important and success is important off the field to do things right and, and and to not be successful when it's all said and done, I think that's a hard hard pill for that kid to swallow personally. But that's just me. Personally, I couldn't agree more with just the results on the field or what, that's what's telling you whether or not what you're doing is working. And it makes me really take a second hard look, you know, when, when programs are – are out there promoting what they're doing, but they don't win games. You know how, like you said, how much is what you're doing working? If you're not able to win, like player development, you're developing players so that that individual can help the team become a better unit and win more games. And I, I guess I just, uh, and it's probably part of what you drilled in me uh, from my time with you. But if you're not winning ball games, what you're doing is not working. And, I, and to me, like if you don't, if you don't meet or exceed your expectations for the season at the end of the year, you really need to go back and evaluate what you're doing no matter what you're doing and, and no matter how much it may be the popular thing to do. So I just I, I find that part uh, intriguing and, and especially the player development side of things that you guys get into. Um, you know, I, I guess if I were to describe you, I would describe you as a as an old school coach who, you know, who likes learning new school things, but you still have all these old school things about you. And I think, unfortunately, because of social media, when you say things like he's an old-school coach, I think that has a negative connotation nowadays. But to me, an old-school coach is somebody that really knows the game and and believes what he believes and and has some conviction in what he believes in and and what he's doing is working. And to me, uh, again, having a program that wins 40 games six years in a row, I, I don't know how anybody could ever look at what you guys are doing, regardless of what you're doing, even if you had no tech whatsoever, in your practices or, or within your team, I don't know how anybody could look at you and say, well, they need to change. I mean, if players are getting right. better and players are going on to the next level and you're winning, what needs to change? So, Well, at the end of the day, you still have to play good defense and you still have to have timely hitting and you still have to throw strikes. And and um, that's what wins and loses baseball games. And, you know, we the last two years, you know, we've thrown a lot of strikes. And, we're the only team in our league that's walked less than 200 hitters, and we've played over 40 innings more than everybody else. And and um, we've also somehow miraculously been in the top five in the country in strikeouts. So maybe just throwing strikes leads to strikeouts. I don't know. Maybe something like that works. I, maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But that's how the numbers pan out. <laughs> uh, I'm curious to ask you one more thing. Uh, I'll ask you just a couple more questions here. Um, and then I'll I'll let you go for the for the day, but we talked before 
uh, we started recording this uh, briefly just about hiring assistants, which I think also goes a long way just to continued success. Um, you had a lot of success hiring a lot of really good coaches. In fact, we talked this is one of the things we talked about before we started the podcast is uh, just about several of your former coaches and, and another a former player um, who are now coaching in pro ball and uh, you know guys who have had a lot of success. And another one of your assistant, one of your former coaches, is a Division two head coach, and there are probably guys I don't know about. There's another guy that's a Division one assistant coach, and you've got you've got a pretty good coaching tree underneath you. Um, what's the secret to hiring a good assistant coach? Uh, you know, in 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 2019, going to the 2020 season, you know, if you were interviewing a guy right now, what would be some characteristics that you'd be looking for in an assistant coach? On the competitive level of that person, um, and and a teacher. I mean, I think you can have a lot of baseball knowledge if you can't um, if you can't share that knowledge and relay it to somebody. Um, then you know, are you a really good coach? You know, I, the term "telling" isn't teaching is, is a great term. Um, it's it's not it's not teaching just because you know something. It's not teaching, and one of the first things I look for is guys that can teach. I think that's important. You know, the guys that that you're speaking of, Travis Hergert, uh, phenomenal coach, and Tony Cagool, phenomenal coach. Um, those guys could really teach, and and they're passionate about it. And that's the other thing. I, I want guys that are passionate about who we are and, and what we are as a program. Um, and then that's you know. I've I've often not hired the best resume since I've been here, um, and that's okay with me. I, I'm trying to find the right guy that fits what we try to do here, and obviously it's it's led to some success. And and um, you know, having you and Tony on the same staff was was really good staff. Having PJ McEntee and Brett Veliquet together, and Mark Michael, and and some of the guys that we've had, they were phenomenal coaches. And, and the current guys I have are great coaches and um you know i think it's i'm looking for something a little different i guess um i'm looking for the right guy i'm looking for a competitive guy who has a passion for teaching and and uh if if we don't look like what we want to look like as a baseball team um we're not coaching well enough i guess is the best way to describe it and and that's one of the best compliments i've ever gotten from people is, man, your teams always look the same. The names are different, but your teams always look and play the same. And so if we look like a poorly coached team, then quite frankly, we are. <laughs> and, you know, that's something that we have to embrace as a coaching staff. So, now Are you finding that out? Are you figuring out, you know, who you want to hire just by your conversation, or are you uh, digging pretty deeply with references you know, just to find out a little more about people and about the competitive side. You know, how how do you go? How, how do you just figure that out exactly? I honestly get more out of my conversations, but I do I do call a lot of references and try to learn about that person through somebody else. Um, but I get most of most of mine through through my own conversations. We talked with, to, with the research. With the research I've done, I guess. Yeah. We talked a little bit about well, before you um, before we started recording. This is one other thing we talked about was just about your due diligence to call everybody that applies for jobs, and I think that's something that's uh, 
you said you don't always hire the best resume and just getting on the phone with people and having a conversation with them regardless of what their resume looks like is a big deal and something that I, uh, you know, that you really impressed that upon me um, whenever I first heard that from you and uh, it's something I'll carry with me and I think that anybody that's listening to this that's got to hire people for whatever job you're in, I think it's a good way to go about things and uh, I'm sure that, you know, had you not done that, you probably would have missed out on some people because their resumes weren't you know, the most impressive, but they ended up being a really good coach for you. Right. Um, yeah, everybody... I think it's important. I mean, you don't know. I was a young coach that just knew the head coach, and that's how I got my opportunity. And um, I still believe I got the Mount Mercy job at 26 because I was probably the only applicant. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I just think everybody got a shot somehow and, and – uh, I respect anybody that's trying to trying to get to the next level or trying to get to the college level if they're just getting a start or trying to transition to another new job. Um, you know, I just think that's important. Is there anything on a resume that will stick out to you or something that you really, like when you see it, you're like, okay, this this could be the guy. Is there anything on a resume that really sticks out to you when you're looking through some things? Um, I like I like resumes um, that that talk about their success. I guess I think that's important. Um, yeah, I, I like reading cover letters and kind of seeing if it's a generic cover letter or um, something a little different, something he touches on that that uh, you know may stick out to me. Like hmm, that's a different way of looking at things or. But, yeah, there's different things you look at. I mean, success is important. If a guy's been in a winning culture, he understands what high expectations are, hopefully, and, and that's a, and that's what we want. That's what we want here. Such a good perspective, and um, I just I think a lot to learn. I think anybody that coaches or anybody that does anything competitively, there's a lot of jobs out there that aren't in coaching that are competitive, and I, I just think there's a lot to learn. You know, I, I just personally like listening to to successful people and how you go about doing things and um, and like learning from anybody that I can. And, and uh, Coach Schulte, you and I go back a long way, but I always feel like I learn something from you every time we talk. This has been a, another great podcast. I appreciate the time that you've spent today. Uh, it means a lot for me to, you know, for you to take an hour, hour and a half out of your day to, to come on here and, and uh, you know, kind of share a lot of the things that you do with your program and, you know, the, the willingness to share what you do with other people, I, I think means a great deal. And um, I just personally want to thank you for being here. No problem, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity.